0: This episode was produced at the Sydney Podcast Studios and School. Hands-on learning for podcast beginners, studio hire for podcast professionals. See sydneypodcaststudios.com.au for all your podcasting needs.
1: I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew. And I still have a rich, full left. But the last tee shot I
0: hit was more like it, that one in the playoff.
1: Against Barton and Ray.
0: That's right.
1: And the best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. I'm your host, Connor T. Lewis of the Society of Golf Historians. Before I bring on our special guest for today's show, I will do what Rod likes to refer to as a bit of house cleaning. Going forward, I will be the sole host of the Talking Golf History Podcast, including our special docupods, which I like to call Golf from the Fringe. Don't worry, this was the plan from the very beginning. Rod wanted to show me the ropes before he released me into the podcast jungle. Rod will continue to join the podcast from time to time, especially for those episodes where we both want to talk about a special moment in time. I would like to take a moment to thank a couple people who made this all possible. First and foremost, I would like to thank my wife, Jennifer. I don't know how you ever put up with my addiction to golf and its history, but I love you for it. Next up, I would like to thank my immediate family. My mom, Terry, who is my top-secret editor. My dad, Bob, who has always supported me. And Kevin and Tracy, my brother and sister, who encouraged me to share my passion for the game. Next up, a series of friends. Robbie Hoffman, who gave me an outlet to help golf clubs cultivate their great history. And John Ostrab and Adam Hoffman, who in that same light support my insanity. Finally, Brian Knotes who challenged me to share my love for golf history on Twitter. Last but not least, Rod Morey, who is one of the best podcasters in the game. When I listen to him, it only reminds me of my own deficiencies. Without Rod Morey and Adrian Logue and an interview on the iSeek podcast, none of this would have been possible. Rod Morey is both a mentor and a friend, and I am lucky on both counts. My final thank you goes out to the listeners. When I started the Society of Golf Historians Twitter account, I thought at best 10 people would follow it. But this last month alone, the account added 456 followers. And when Rod asked me to do this podcast, I laughed at the idea. And yet, episode after episode, thousands of you from all over the world tune in. I joke on this podcast all the time that I only do the show so I can talk to someone other than the voices in my head. But in fact... I do it all for you. I always welcome your feedback, even when that feedback is, and I quote, the Talking Golf History Podcast would be much better if it was just Rod Morey, end quote. To that point, by the way, I agree. If you'd like to re- leave feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at SHistorians or Rod Morey at, at Rod under slash Morey. On Facebook, we have a private page, the Society of Golf Historians. And finally, you can email me directly at Historians at gmail.com. If you missed that Aussie accent, you can also catch Rod Morey on the I Seek Golf podcast and State of the Game. Both pods I highly recommend. Now on to episode 16 of the Talking Golf History podcast with our special guest, Stephen Proctor. Stephen served as the senior editor at the Baltimore Sun, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Houston Chronicle. He is a native of Maryland and graduated from American University in Washington, and later was awarded the John S. Knight Fellowship in Journalism at Stanford University. Stephen is an avid golfer, and on top of writing this brilliant book we are about to discuss, Monarch of the Green, put together a group to save two public golf courses here in Florida. Stephen, thank you for joining episode 16 of the Talking Golf History podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Connor. I'm really excited to do this. And I have listened to every podcast that you've done. And I really appreciate, as a person who loves golf history, what you are doing for the game and for pres- preservation of its history.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's really nice of you to say. And the check is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, you know, before we jump in, uh, and, and, I, and I know everyone wants to talk about golf history, but. Uh, I don't know enough about this. Let's talk a little bit about the the golf courses that you and a group of people put together to save from annihilation, I guess, right? Well,
1: right. I live in Brevard County, Florida, and our two principal golf courses uh, in the southern part of Brevard County, which is a very large county, are the Habitat at Valkyria, which is like a championship golf course and a really fine one. And we have another course called Spessard Holland, which is par sixty-seven. A classic sporting course, as they would call it. Yeah. And uh, both of them are really delightful courses. The county had had very difficult time making money off of them. And principally because they had a third course that was really built with the intention of spurring development that didn't materialize in the way they'd imagined. And it became a financial drain. But their decision was that they were going to close all three courses and turn, turn them into what they would call passive parks meaning that they would occasionally mow and then you hike or walk there with your dog or whatever. And uh, a man named Tom Becker is the person who led the effort. And I want to give credit there where it's due, but he came uh, up with an idea that had been tried once in Baltimore, which I'd seen when I lived there of forming a nonprofit corporation and taking over the golf courses as a nonprofit. Yeah. With your sole goal being preservation of affordable golf on a course that's well-maintained for, for its price range and uh, so we started on September 1st of last year with the takeover of the golf course, and I'm I'm a member of the board, and so we have a seven-person board that oversees um, the two golf courses. And our main job was hire a great general manager, which which we did, just an awesome guy named Mike Uregan, who has the courses in absolutely fantastic condition, and our revenue has been great every month of the year, all year long, wow, principally because great. of the improved course conditions, and we're going to end up having <clears throat> growth in rounds year by year in our first year which i think is contrary to what is happening in a lot of the golf course industry so absolutely um you know people feel a sense of ownership of the two courses now because it's non-profit it's uh you know basically a bunch of people who love golf trying to keep your golf course alive and here's how you can help do it i love it so, you know the whole community pitched in to buy two different rollers for the greens one for habitat one for Spencer. really
0: how fascinating yes that's fantastic
1: <laughs> 30 bucks at a time, you know, whatever. So it just, uh, it's a kind of a community effort and uh, going beautifully.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm just gonna, I'm putting this out there to Derek Duncan and Andy Johnson, get this guy on their podcast to talk about that effort. I know I talk about history, but I think it's just a- I
1: think it's worth it because, you know, uh, municipal golf is struggling a lot of places. And, you know, we were basically taking a stab in the dark when we tried it. And it's amazing to me- that with the right decision in terms of who is managing it and the right set of values, how far we've been able to get in a single year. Yeah. And it just makes me feel like other places, you know, this there's nothing particularly unique about where we're doing it, you know? Right. Uh, it, it, I think this could work in a lot of places, and I've read some things on Twitter uh, in uh, – in Australia and various other places where they're having all kinds of trouble shutting them down. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, and I just think there there are opportun- This uh, this kind of thing presents an interesting opportunity if the tax laws in your country work the way they do in the United States.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I, I'm I'm putting that out there. Andy, Derek, get Stephen on the on the show because I think this is going to be beneficial all across hopefully the the world, but specifically here in the country where. Uh, We hear more and more talk about shutting down courses and decreasing budgets, and just having a successful story to tell and share uh, across the country as here's a group of people that care enough about golf, you know, to put the ante up to go in and do it themselves. So kudos. I just, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it today. But it's such an important story. You know, as important about you know what we're going to talk today, which laid the foundation for the golf that we're about to talk about. So, um, let's start a little bit about you before we jump into the great uh, young
1: Tom Morris. Um, why is golf history important to you, Stephen? You know, it's interesting because I I took up golf when I was forty one, mostly because my wife made me. <laughs> she felt like uh, you're never going to get ahead at the newspaper if you don't play with the executives. They all play golf. You know, I like to go to the races at the time. And uh, so I took up golf and I was very fortunate that my first teacher and I'm going to give him a shout out here. Mason Champion was his name. He always assigned books with the lessons. And the first book that he assigned was The Story of Golf by George Pepper, because he felt like no one could become a real golfer, like a capital G golfer, if they didn't feel a sense of connection To the history and traditions of the game, yeah, and you know I've always liked history, and that book just got me started reading other books about history, and then you know how the rabbit hole opens up and down. Yeah,
0: my wife can tell you, as a matter of fact, that's why I thanked her. (laughs) So, so was your 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 pull towards golf history was actually cultivated cultivated by uh, your swing coach, and was it immediate from there? I mean, did was it? The first paragraph of that book, like what what was it that, you know, hooked you with the history, not only the game?
1: What actually hooked me was that that book uh, mentioned Bernard Darwin.
0: Yeah. And, uh,
1: you know, and I started I went and got the golf courses of the British Isles by Bernard Darwin from classics of golf. And that book just that was the one that hooked me. It's
0: the illustrations right by Harry Roundtree, I think, isn't it right? Yeah, they're gorgeous, too.
1: And the, the essay writing is just amazing. And then I got playing the like, and that had a lot of tales about Harold Hilton and Freddie Tate and yeah. other great heroes. And then I just started finding it all incredibly fascinating. And it, I kept having the thought, which I know you've had, which is that I play, you know, all these people I know who play golf have never heard of any of these people. Yeah. And there's all these amazing feats that have been done. And you're thinking that, wow, it's too bad that all of this seems completely lost yeah and uh, that's why i appreciate what you're doing
0: i I mean i got goosebumps when you said that i mean it's not only the feats but just the the stories especially in the early days i mean we're going to talk about some of those stories today and that's why i love young tom morris and his story because he connects really the old generation i mean i think a lot of people would say he's the old generation but he really connects with the old with the new Right? The,
1: he is the, the thing that leads the old into the new. Absolutely. You know, he is the, the pioneer, as the, the subtitle of my book says. He's the pioneer that that starts it going in a different direction. Basically takes a game that's been frozen in amber for like four centuries yeah. and then just shakes it up. And all the things that he started, you know, reverberated for decades and decades after his death, before full change came about. But you know, a river starts someplace, and, yeah. and the river of modern history starts with him.
0: I agree 100%. So let's, let me ask you this question then. So again, before we get into it, how did you get into telling the story of young Tom Morris? Like, How did that be? All right. So how do you, starting at age of 41, I assume you don't know who young Tom Morris is, you start reading the books, you read about Bernard Darwin, you read uh, The Golf Courses of the British Isles, how do you stumble upon young Tom's story? and how how is it that it grabs you so much that you decide I have to write a book
1: well i'll tell you it's a, it's a combination of things some of it is planned but you know reading all the bernard darwin books and and by the after i finished those two i just got them all and read them all that's sort of how i roll some of the times i like to go do a deep dive on a certain thing yeah. that's small yeah. And uh, so I read all the Bernard Darwin books. And then the one thing I wanted to do most of all in life was to go to St. Andrews. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, me and a friend who uh, went and put our names in the lottery for the old course because we didn't want to go if we couldn't play the old course. Right. And, you know, buying the tea time from a, a, a oh. service is very difficult for yeah. me anyway, financially. But we got lucky. And the first roll we took, we got our tea time at the old course. Wow. And, uh, so we went um, to go to I've been reading a lot of Herbert Warren Wind also. And so we were going to do a north to the links of Dornock tour where we would start oh. in St. Andrews and play all the classic courses we could up the coastline uh, to Dornock and then north to Brora from there. So that was our trip. But when we got there, it was a Sunday and we didn't have anything to do because our tea time was Monday the next day on the old course. We walked around on that a little, bit, we decided to go and visit the cemetery. And when yeah. we went to the cemetery, you know, I'd already read a lot, decent amount of golf history at that point, And I know a ton about old Tom mm-hmm. and, I've, and I've heard of his son and I've heard of the tragic story. But then you go and you see the tomb and you're like, wow, Tommy's tomb is like 12 and a half feet tall or yeah. something. It goes to the top of that ancient stone wall that surrounds the cemetery there. And then below it is a pretty ordinary tombstone for his father. And a little bit away is a, you know, a pretty nice little uh, obelisk for Alan Robertson. uh, Both of whom you've, you've heard probably more of than young Tom. Yeah. And you think to yourself, you know, and then I read the inscription at the bottom. And it says this was raised with contributions from 60 golfing societies. Well, you know, by that time, I was aware enough to know that that had to be either every single golfing society <laughs> right, right, or almost every golfing society that existed. And so then the question I'm having is, well, what is the story there? Something really insane must have happened for them to decide to shell out their own money to build this monument here in the most sacred part of St. Andrews. And I was, I was about uh, 25 or so years into my journalism career at that point And I'd had a goal of trying to retire when I was 55 or as soon after that as possible. But I knew I would want a project, you know, that I'm not going to want to golf every day. I'm going to want to do something. And I decided that, you know, I'm going to do golf history and I'm going to find out what the story is behind this monument because there's a great book in that I know. I can just – my instinct tells me so. And uh, so then it was just a question of teaching myself to be a golf historian. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Through research and reading, right? Just hard work.
1: Well, you know, I was like I say, I was reading Herbert Warren Wind and I became aware that he had decided to do this Classics of Golf library that uh, was 70, 70 volumes, I think it was 69 volumes, of what he considered to be the great works of golf through history. Yeah. And I thought, well, there's a good place to start. So I bought the library and read the whole library, and, uh, and then I just went through a process after that of finding about other great golf books like Tom Morse of St. Andrew's Colossus of Golf, and then scouring their biographies for other books, getting those. And I think probably before I started doing research on Tommy and his family and the Victorian age, I think I'd read about 125 or 130 golf books about different aspects of golf, like architecture, construction, you know, the history of the game, where it comes from. I felt like I would never be able to understand how to put his story in context if I didn't have a really pretty good grasp on the entirety of it.
0: So as you're doing this, you're still thinking as you're reading about the the history in its full view, you're yes. this is all under the the idea of I'm writing this story about young Tom Morris.
1: Right, with the specific intent of understanding where young Tom Morris fit into that large yeah. arc of history. How yeah. does how does So how can you know what his life really means if you can't see what if you don't know as much about what happened after as what happened before and during. You see what I mean?
0: Absolutely. 100%. To really
1: really get it. So I felt like, and then I read all the way, you know, things all the way up through Nicholas and woods and everything, just because I felt like you wanted to see how the whole thing unfolded before you really went deep into your own topic. And then you could truly make something of it, uh, in terms of an understanding of where he fits in and what his role is to, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So how long does that take you,
0: right? I mean, from the, let's say, you know, seeing the monument of young Tom Morris, like that um, pivotal moment where you get this spark in your mind, like, ooh, I have to do this. You, I, I, I'm assuming you felt compelled to yes, do Yes, of course. And so... Except
1: would be a fair word. Yeah.
0: So you, you decide to take this path, uh, you know, th- for our listeners here, like, how long is that path? Uh, obviously, your dedication to doing it is remarkable. And we'll go into some of the things I just find utterly outstanding about the book. But what is that? T- what's that timeline look like?
1: Well, for you, you got to keep in mind that all the time that I'm doing this, I'm either the managing editor yeah. or the deputy managing editor of a large American newspaper. Mm-hmm. So that is a very time-consuming job. Yeah. Uh, so, but I what I did was from 2006 until 2013 when I retired. I read only books about golf all those years and lots and lots of them. And then, you know, I had access to a friend, Oliver Kay, wonderful man, who was a rare book librarian at the University of California, Berkeley. And he was able to help me acquire materials that I needed that were very rare. Yeah. And also helped me uh, immensely with the initial newspaper research that I needed to do. Uh, you know, once I figured the whole story out, I could, you know, pinpoint the things that I really needed to find newspaper wise and that that helped me narrow it down, and he was a very skilled researcher and helped me with that so we're, was, yeah, we're talking about years though right yeah, yeah fourteen by the time the 14, book came out fourteen years right, but you got to keep in mind a no,
0: lot of that probably it. of it's part time sure, absolutely, but I mean, in that whole period, did you ever question the idea of writing it like were there was there ever a moment where and I, this is more my curiosity, but did you ever have a moment where you were just like oh, this is exhausting. I mean, I, I get that even... <laughs> yeah, I'm amazed by you, by the way, because I'm writing that narrative podcast I do, Gulf right. uh, from the Fringe, and right. it's a 20-minute narrative that I research, right? And I'm, at the end of it, I'm like, kind of like, what am I doing this for? And thank goodness people like it because I wouldn't do it otherwise. But, I mean, did you ever get to that point where you're like, this is exhausting?
1: Well, you know, so I have to tell a funny story now. Yeah. When I went in 2006, Lee Hor, which was a good friend of mine, Uh, And an editor also in the newspaper game came with me and we saw this statue together and I set out on the Tommy journey and everything. So he's been there every step of the way. Yeah. And when the book finally came out and um, the book jacket comes out, you know, they describe it from their own public relations department, what they think of the book. Right. And one of the words they used to describe it was exhaustively researched. Yeah. And So I I agree. I texted Lee, and I said, oh, they describe it as exhaustive re- research. That makes me so happy. And he texts back, well, I was certainly exhausted. And, uh, <laughs> Love it. I think all my friends feel that way because you know, it was a story that I lived with for all those years trying to figure it out. And uh, they, of course, um, were subject to uh, listening to it probably a lot more than they cared to some of the time.
0: Trust me, every single one of my friends listening is nodding their head. Just thinking about how, just talking to me in a general conversation. So I totally get that.
1: I got Uh, asked to do a couple lectures in Scotland recently, and they wanted a 45 minute lecture with, with slides. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's a long lecture. And Lee says, once again, being the funny guy, you've never talked for less than 45 minutes about Tom Morse in your life. (laughs) You know that,
0: and not to get off subject, but that reminds me of a story. I was asked to do a, a national golf charity speech, uh, for Ronald McDonald house. And it was here in Tampa, so it was zero issue on my part. And I come in, and you know they've got a pretty good idea. This is before the Society of Golf Historians, and I, I can't remember even how they got my name. So I, I was about ready to get up on stage, and I brought some of artifacts like you know Bobby Jones Personal Club and a bronze bust of Bobby Jones. I can't even remember the other things I brought. Uh, maybe a rut iron. And I'm uh, about ready to go on stage, and the director of the charity dinner kind of pulls me aside. And she goes, Yeah, this is over dinner, mind you. It's after a golf tournament. She goes, I was wondering how long you were planning to talk for. And I said, "Uh, I can talk literally as long as you want. I'm like, you don't need to put a time limit. If you want me to go on, I'll go on forever. She goes, oh, no, no, no. I was thinking about five minutes. And Uh, I looked at her and I just said, I can't remember. Let's just say Claire. I said, Claire, um, I can't introduce myself in five minutes. (laughs) I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll go up on stage. You stand in that corner right over there in that light. And if you ever think I'm losing the audience, you give me the kill sign, and I'll, you know, finish it in thirty seconds. And so, you know, you know this as well as anything. It's all about your audience. So I did the speech about um, who can you blame, right? So it was all about yeah. stories of who can you blame for a lipping out a putt. Why is the core, you know, the whole four and a quarter inches wide? But it's funny though. You think about that. Before I'd ever done a speech, which is going back 10 years, you think, how am I ever going to go on for 40 minutes? That's a long talk, right? It and, is. And that you get involved with it, and you're like, oh, dear, I need to cut this short, because you're in the speech, right? And you're like, oh, my, I'm going
1: long. Right. No, it was, it was a fun thing to do, and the audiences were wonderful. So, and it's, yeah. uh, we're, it's, it's really great, and it's a good experience, as I'm sure you know.
0: Oh, but you doing it over in Scotland even more so, specifically on your book.
1: Yeah, no, I was really thrilled. The whole thing was very, very well received there. The St. Andrews community of historians there is extremely welcoming, and they were all very, very kind to me. And uh, yes, it was a wonderful time there. Yeah.
0: Well, let me tell you this. I'm going to give you perhaps the greatest compliment I can give you. Um, And it's this, and I'm sure you know this, that by writing this book, uh, that you are essentially taking on the life's work of old Tom Morris whose purpose in life after Tommy's death was to keep his legacy alive. And mm-hmm. it's sad that after his passing, um, that a lot of people forgot about young Tom Morris. It's tragic because he, he spent, what was that? I mean, it was 30 plus years uh, promoting how great his son was. And there were others out there, but you know, when the the century turned and uh, we started changing the new technologies into the, the Haskell ball, the great legacy and the great player of young Tom Morris kind of hit the back burner. And that's my compliment is that you're really doing, when I read this book, I was probably in chapter two and I I thought of that, that young, you know, old Tom spent his entire life talking about how great of a golfer his son was.
1: Well, that is so true. You know, every time anybody ever came to visit him, the very first thing he did was to take the belt out and show it to them. Yeah. And, uh, he had that belt in the room where he lived, wherever he lived, uh, as as after Tommy died. And his grandchildren thought it, knew it was his most prized possession. And that was the reason they ended up donating it to the Royal and Ancient after he passed in 1908. But um, I do think it's ironic in a certain way. I, you're right that Tom was very determined to keep his son's legacy alive. Yeah. But in a strange way, the fact that his father lived so long and accomplished such a huge amount himself as an architect and as a player himself. And just as the person whose character really shaped the way the game is thought about today, uh, I think very substantially, you know, that had a very strong effect of overshadowing his son yeah. because he became the Morris that people remembered.
0: Yeah. And, uh,
1: and you know, so I think he would find that sad, but, but, uh, I find that a little bit ironic. And, you know, the fact that, Tommy's tragic death, I think, is another reason, too, that people overlook his playing ability and his place in history as a player, because they tend to think of him as the golfer who died of a broken heart, yeah, and not as the player. And one of the main goals I had for this book, two goals I had for the book, one was to tell a story about Tommy separate from his father to the extent that that's possible to do. yeah. Yeah. Um, And every other book that's ever, well, the only other book that's been done about him is a father and son story, even as advertised. Yep. but, to give him his own book, which I felt that he deserved most above all things and and then to really restore him to the conversation about who are the greatest players of the game absolutely and who are the big the most transformative players of the game, yes. leaving aside greatness at play, yeah, and uh that is what I wanted people to learn from the book, besides you know the story of how golf unfolds as a game, which yeah. I think. Ninety nine point nine percent of people who play it have no idea what kind of game it was at the beginning,
0: and it was a great game back then too. I, I, let me ask you this: so, I'm not even ask, but um, I'm going to have you tell the story because uh, I read it was one in the one of the early chapters, and um, I picked up something that I didn't know, um, and that was about the championship belt. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about who donated the belt and the belt that preceded it for another sport. I did not know that, by the way. I was kind of like, oh, well, I guess that kind of makes sense now why we had a championship belt and how we got there. But I thought that was really enlightening, I, and I'd never heard that story. So please jump into that.
1: The, the, the belt was a purchased, you, you know, it was James Ogilvy Fairley and the Earl of Eglinton wanted to start the championship together, uh, To be partly because Alan Robertson had died, But partly because Fairley had been having the idea for some time that golf really needed to be more national and not so club focused. Right. You know, and he was as clubby as anybody. And his first idea was a national championship among clubs. But, you know, he did have the grander idea of a national game. And when they decided to transfer that to a national game for determining who was, in fact, the best player. And because at that time, the amateur players, even the very best of them, were, were very far behind. The, the uh, quality of the professionals in terms of scores uh, that would change later. But, but at that time, there were very few amateurs, less than like two or three who could even think of competing. And um, so he wanted to have a championship among professionals to determine who really was the greatest player. And of course, I think in his heart, he wanted Tom to win and <laughs> to be sure. their successor to Alan Robertson, um, which isn't how it turned out but they they decided they would do this and they needed to buy an appropriate prize and you know a belt had been awarded by the company of archers for many years a mm-hmm. gold and eglinton had donated that belt himself and he was uh, the person who uh, you know, supported this. And I don't know particularly right off the top of my head what everybody's donations were. But the club, between him and the club, the belt was purchased for 25 pounds. But that's the story of how they chose a belt. It was similar to a trophy that he had given to archers to compete for.
0: Yeah. I I didn't know that part of the story. I really didn't. Uh, And I thought that was a little fascinating. So it was a nice little connecting part of the story that uh, kind of rang home. I I always like to, when I dive into a book, find something that I didn't know. And that was right off the bat, I think. Yeah, chapter two. Yeah, chapter two.
1: The other thing that I think is, is just sort of ironically fascinating to me is that I always think of golf as much more akin to prize fighting in that age than the game it is now. Yeah. So I think it's kind of humorous that the award was a belt like what you might receive at a prize fight.
0: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Especially in the
1: day of challenge matches, right? Exactly, and that's what golf primarily was during that time. During all the years that Tommy lived, there were only two regularly scheduled stroke play tournaments, the open itself and the annual tournament at St. Andrews. So 90% of their game was foursome matches, uh, usually with rich gentlemen. And then the, you know, what I would say, regular but periodic challenge match. Yeah. So
0: you and I know a lot about the Morris family. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners do. I thought maybe you could share uh, the Morris story. Um, You know, what made... Not just the son, obviously, but the father and son so pivotal to the game of golf. And and maybe uh, we'll go into how young Tom transformed the game next. But what is it about the Morrises for our listeners that make them such a pivotal part of golf's history and the story of golf?
1: I think really it's it, it, the, the biggest thing of all is old Tom Morris had that sort of personality where... He just won every person over. He had a sort of sage personality from the very beginning. You know, he was a, his father, like every single person who grew up on North Street grew up as the son or daughter of a weaver. Everybody was weaving linen in the days that the Mor- Tom Morris was young, and he grew up as the son of a weaver. But by the time he was coming of age and he was getting married to his wife Nancy. It was obvious that there was going to be no future in weaving. So they, everybody yeah. was looking around for something new to do. And they apprenticed him to Alan Robertson as a ballmaker. You know, his father uh, ended up, I think, delivering mail for a while. So they had different things they were trying out. And then Alan introduced him to the world of famous people in golf, mostly by playing with him as a partner. And then Tom would get action with foursome games at St. Andrews with like James Ogilvy Fairley. Yeah. And people loved old Tom. He just he knew his place, but he also was able to be himself, which is a trait that his son would inherit. (laughs) And, you know, he he just um, he won fairly over to such a degree that fairly wanted him to come with him all the way back to Presswick. And as things unfolded, Tom and Alan had had a breakup over the use of gutty balls. And uh, Alan and Tom was having just opening his own shop in St. Andrews in 1848. And just starting out as a businessman, and this offer comes that, you know, puts him at the top of the heat, puts him equal to Allen, but at a different golf course, and also gives him the opportunity to design the course himself, which he must clearly have had an interest in as he went on to do it for the rest of his life. So uh, he he just – old Tom paved the way, and, you know, his relationships with the wealthy gentlemen of the club were – they revered him in a way – him and Alan were sort of I think singular both in that same way. I'm not sure that any other person, with the possible exception of James Braid, ever won the level of respect from club members, you know, at the same same level as those. Obviously, many, many professionals have been highly regarded and respected at their club. But yeah. these these guys were really luminaries in the clubs where they were. And uh that paved the way for young Tom, certainly, uh in every dimension of his life.
0: Yeah. Now but what's interesting to me, and I think your book does this so expertly. First of all, you know, you talk about the weavers. Um I not to put make a pun out of this, but you weave the story so well together. Uh so you really pay homage perhaps to his family in weaving all this the the tidbits and in history into a story that's um, you know, for the folks that are listening here, first of all, I've already said that I highly recommend this book, but It is an enjoyable read. Uh, I think Stephen's done a great job at at writing just not only a brilliant book, but it's a story. It's not uh, a history book. It's a story that weaves in a lot of history. And that takes a lot of talent to do that and do it in a way that is uh, engaging and entertaining when you read it. Uh, One of the things that I find remarkable is uh both father and son were amazing golf talents but they were very different people i thought may- maybe you could jump into that from uh tom's reserve to well I'll let you go into tommy but you, you often wonder how those two what the dynamic was between the two because they tommy was changing more than uh the game of golf he was ch- he was trying to change society was he not
1: well, I don't know if I'd go as far as all that, but yeah. it, here's what I would say is that one thing I think it's really important to keep in mind is that old Tom created Tommy exactly the way he wanted to. Yeah. He and his wife sacrificed greatly and pulled every string they had to get Tommy placed at Air Academy, which is the you know, where the wealthy merchants and the nobles would send their children to school. Yeah. So that is still one of the finest schools in Scotland. That is the thing that separates Tommy from every golfer of his age and starts him on the pathway to being a new golfer for a new age. Yeah. Because he goes to school with all these people who presume to be better than him. And uh, he, after he goes to that school, his parents wanted him to be that way, obviously, or they mm-hmm. wouldn't have sacrificed. I think it was something on the order of 5 or 6 or 7% of their entire income it took them to send Tommy to that school. Yeah. And uh, whereas he could have gone to school for a penny a week uh, at the at the neighborhood school. So they they made a great sacrifice. They obviously wanted him to be a different prepared for a new age or a yeah. new life. And uh, he was their oldest child, at least their oldest surviving child. Yes. Um, and uh, so so it's natural that they would do that for their for their first born son that survived into adulthood. Yeah. And uh, so but Tommy, having gone to school there, Tommy just had a completely different idea about himself Than other people who were had grown up in the golf life so most of them were caddies or they worked as ball makers or club makers and you know tommy obviously worked some in his father's shop when he was young but by the time he got to be in his middle teens you know he was pretty much only playing golf because for the very, very simple reason that he could make way more money doing that than he would ever be able to bring in for the family by working in the shop and in the victorian age you know every member of the family they left school at 12 because they had to go start earning money the family needed every dime yeah. and if Tommy had the earning power he had at golf you can be absolutely certain they wouldn't be letting him waste very much time working in the shop making golf balls absolutely. or golf clubs yeah. he was out playing with gentlemen and uh, and playing in tournaments and you know he was just that those two things the fact that he he didn't um, uh, that he went to that school that he thought of himself way differently. Like every other person of his age would have caddied for gentlemen all the time. Tommy yeah. never caddied for gentlemen, not right. once that anybody can prove. And uh, he just had a different idea of who he was going to be, and he was going to be his own man and a different kind of golfer. But I don't think he extended that to trying to change society at large.
0: I was thinking more of like uh, his ideals of in the, the foundation and being a founder of the Rose Club. Yes. And how... Many of the things, specifically in uh, knowing his, his value and insisting on being paid ahead of matches with yes. gentlemen, versus, because that was unheard of, right? I mean, okay. old Tom never would have dared. That was a, I mean, from a golfing perspective, it was a societal change to be, I guess, confident enough in your skills and realizing that you're not winning this match without me. So I'm getting paid whether we win or lose.
1: Right. Which and I that love. Was a yeah. Big change. That was a very big change. Uh You know, um but but at the same time, I think gentlemen realized and I think the statue you keep having to go back to that statue. Oh, sure. All the sure. They realized that Tommy was a different person of a yeah. different sort. A new I like to say a new golfer for a new age because, you know, it's right in the middle of the height of the Industrial Revolution. Everything is changing. Society is 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 reforming in different ways than it had been before. And I think they in you know obviously the fact that Tommy was a superstar changes a lot. Absolutely. You know, you get special treatment then and you get special treatment now. Yeah. But 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 he they I think, you know, it's interesting who he played with all the time. He played with John White Melville, who, you know, the the Peter Lewis, the great historian of the Royal and Ancient, ends his first a book about the history of the Royal Ancient with the death of John White Melville, that marks the end of Era One. So yeah. that tells you how important Melville was and Gilbert Mitchell Innes and other people who were movers and shakers. So they would not be playing with him if he was doing too much. Oh, sure. Sure. Yes. Disrupting. Oh, I, I'm not I, I'm not saying
0: he wasn't beloved because clearly he was. But I just yeah. I, I guess I always have admire, admired young Tom Morris for pushing the boundaries. And it's funny because and you mention it uh in the book too is that you know many historians or or just lay people really have always considered walter hagen to be the first kind of touring pro when in fact it's really young tom morris who didn't take the professional's job who walked away for that knowing that you can make money just playing golf he was really right. the first and 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 then really there was a there was a big fall off after him it didn't really catch on and maybe that speaks more to his talent do you think
1: i think there you know uh, you know i would say that you know the way i look at history of golf is that once in a generation a transcendent player comes along and that moves the change meter forward yet again and so tommy is the very first of those and he sets a lot of these changes in motion but you know harry varden who's only a generation later you know tommy dies in 1875 varden wins his uh first championship just about twenty five years later right i mean twenty years later one generation and uh he is then able to you know leave behind in a state of eleven thousand eight hundred and fifty pounds or something yeah, like that absolutely so so you know it, it did ratchet forward in terms of uh continuing the success of the professional player but with harry Varden in terms of his total earnings but obviously yeah. he still needed to keep a club pro job and everybody yeah. did until Hagen, but I think there's just continuous movement along that line after Tommy, and uh, it isn't movement that goes all the way down to the bottom of the professional heap like it does now in the age yeah. of Tiger Woods, because after Harry Varden and you know Sandy Hurd and James Braid and John Henry Taylor. You know, there wasn't a lot of prize money left after those guys. (laughs) That's true. They were taking everything. But those guys did pretty well for themselves. Yeah. And probably another five or six players just a little bit underneath them did okay too. Yeah. But it wasn't the depth of money that they have now. And uh, but that's Tommy starts that ball rolling. Definitely with the with the driving of his own bargain with the with the gentleman. And, uh, you know, the Rose Club also it was kind of a discussion club. Uh, as well as a golf club. And they discussed issues of the day, like the Chartist movement and this and that. And uh, so Tommy was very interested in things like that and hung out with other people who were interested in things like that, which is one of the other things that's very separating of him from his peers. Yeah, You know, I think only person who was really, and the reason they were best friends is Davey Straff was also pretty well educated. And he uh, worked as a law clerk. And it's kind of interesting that after Tommy starts winning the opens, and making a lot of money in foursome matches and in challenge matches, Davey decides to quit the law job.
0: I know that's great, isn't it? I mean, and no one would have done that prior to Young nobody Tom. Nobody would
1: have done it. And the other thing that's was It's such a lowly is,
0: profession, really? I mean, I mean, that's fair to say.
1: Oh in that yes, time prior to lowest, Young Tom Morris, yeah. Oh, so so Davey is you know he's he's working in a law firm. So if for some crazy reason he could end up getting more education and becoming a barrister or something he might actually get admitted to a club one day in his life, right? Yeah. And uh, the act the Royal and Ancient actually sends a committee of people to go and speak with him. Yeah, unreal. It was a
0: great part before, of your story.
1: Before he enters a tournament to say, you know, if you enter this professional tournament, you'll be f- forever asked for viewed as a professional by us. And you know, Davey basically listens and says, "Well, thanks, but no thanks" and plays and I think the Five Shower Journal was, or the, um, I can't remember if it's the St. Andrew Citizen or the Five Shower Journal wrote that they thought it was a foolish decision on his yeah. part to throw his lot with the yeah. professionals. But, you know, interestingly, the minute Tommy died, Davey went and took a club pro job yeah. at North Berwick because he didn't know where the money would come from without Tommy. Yeah. And, you know, Tommy got a lot of places to throw professional stroke play tournaments that created more money opportunities. And, uh... There was a definite lull in it after Tommy died because, you know, w- there were great golfers that followed him, Bob Ferguson from Muscle Burr and Jamie yeah. Anderson. And, uh, but for whatever reason, they didn't capture the imagination, imagination yeah. the, that, that he did. And it w- would be until, really until John Ball before there would be an epochal event that would move the game forward again.
0: Yeah. You know, it's to that point, I, I guess when, and just to highlight this for some of our listeners, when... When they when the RNA, the folks from the RNA went to talk to Davy Strath and and warned them you'll forever be born, you know, or, or deemed a professional, folks have to remember it wasn't another fifty years in some places longer before a professional could walk into a clubhouse. It was right. you were essentially being called uh, and this is in broadest terms of course, uh, many of the professionals were basically referred to as, you know, drunken caddies who knew how to play golf.
1: Harold Hutchinson referred to them as uh, Horace Hutchinson referred to them as uh, feckless, reckless creatures whose only loves are golf and whiskey. Yeah, and uh, what's wrong they, with that, Horace? Yeah, well, of course, <laughs> that's what most of us are thinking. Is is, is that wrong? Is right, that I know, I know, I
0: know. Too many golfers that fit that description and aren't as good as golfers. Um, right. So let's let's jump into Young Tom. So I agree, Young Tom is a once in a generation player. How did he change the game of golf? Like, so let's, how did he change the game then? And what, how do we feel his impact today from a golfing standpoint and from a major championship standpoint? Because they were both dramatic changes.
1: Okay, so let's start with the golfing and we'll move on to the major championship. Absolutely. Tommy um, was uh, everybody that played golf that was a famous golfer, with the probable except only exception being Willie Park. Uh, played a game that you would refer to as Pocky. Very. <laughs> I like it. Yes. Yes. It's the old Scottish words. It means cunning in Witter strategy. And uh, basically, their whole goal was avoid hazards, uh, hit it straight, don't swing hard, don't press, you know, play cautious golf, get around all the trouble, get a tidy score. That was how golf was played by people in the main. And uh, Willie Park was pretty rambunctious by comparison to that, but he was no Tommy. Tommy comes along. And two things happened. One is his idea of the game is attack. Attack on every shot. Don't yeah. be one bit afraid of the hazards. Relish a hazard shot. Learn how to do it perfectly. So he, he had a different attitude. He swang way harder than they did. <laughs> he took a little bit shorter of a backswing, but he swang so hard going forward that he almost fell forward, kind of like Gary Player. Yeah. And his hat would go flying off into the crowd. So he just was swashbuckling in the sense of his uh, his approach to hitting the ball. And then the but the most important change that he enacted in terms of a golfing point of view is Tommy came along right when the hard rubber ball, the gutty had been invented. And he was the first person to realize, hey, you could hit this thing with iron clubs way more than yeah. with these wooden clubs. And he started using his rut iron. You know what that is, yeah. it? a little short, stubby face club that was very lofted, which you mostly used to pop the ball out of hazards like a cart rut <laughs> that was left in the middle of the fairway. So he started using that just to approach the green on a standard basis and hit the kind of shot that you see on tour today, one that goes high and stops. And, uh, of course, he was playing with a smooth face club, didn't have any rims in it. And and
0: people need to understand the club is about the size of the ball. This is not a sand wedge that you have in your hand. I mean, I I, I believe old Tom Morris and many other golfers thought he was a fool to try to take a full swing. with I mean, because the the margin for error is, is zero.
1: Yes, and he, he did that but the it, it, all the time. Alan had tried it a couple times Uh, in desperate situations. He would he would take a, a club like a rut iron or something he had in his bag. I think he called it a frying pan, and it was a very lofted iron, and he could kind of pop it up on the green. But it was dangerous to try that with a feathery because it might explode. But uh, once you had the gutty, you could do that. Yeah. The other thing that Tommy did all the time was, you know, the shot you would wind up with the most is a shot that's like 20 yards off the green, so you're not far enough to really hit anything hard, yeah. Uh, but it might be pretty rough ground in that day before you got to the putting area that had been cleared out and you know c- kept a little closer mode. And people would just put it with a wooden putter, yep. And you know, obviously, it's bumping all over the place when you do that. Tommy started carrying a, a short little straight faced iron that he called the Jigger, and he would use that to just you know bump the ball up there, like yeah. pop it. it, and then let it pop it up there and let it run. And uh so that sort of the inventor of the bump and run shot in that regard. And then what happened after that is once he started using irons regularly, everybody started using irons regularly and then people started using their cleek to tee off with. Yeah. And different other you know people had been putting with their cleek for a long time. Uh yeah. but 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 they then they started using it to hit like low piercing shots. And it really just spurred the use and development of iron clubs from then until now, honestly. That's when people start to get in the idea of, well, we could invent this to make the club work better. And then they started putting pock marks on the face. And then they started putting ribs on the face. Yeah. And so that whole evolution of how golf clubs can change the way you hit the ball and your ability to control the ball starts there with Tommy. Yeah. And And just
0: let me jump in here just so people know. A clique, by the way, folks, is essentially like a one iron it's a very low lofted uh it it can be short it can have a short uh length or a a long length whether it's a putting cleek or a pitching cleek or a driving cleek which would be like your 1 iron so just so you're in the nomenclature sorry
1: yes thanks i should have done that myself no that's okay I that's okay you doing it. so but the other the other thing in terms of the championships is i think that tommy winning the belt is the single most important thing that happened in the first 400 50 years of the game yeah you know when tommy wins the belt you know what what you if you're reading the coverage in the Fife Shire journal by henry farney he's basically calling out all the clubs to say hey you know this trophy's now been claimed we need another trophy yeah if we're going to keep up golf the way it's growing and you know that became such a big story him winning the belt particularly in england um And a lot of people were betting on it in England, on the tournament itself. And uh, the papers in England covered it because gamblers wanted to read about it and bet on it. And when he won the belt, it really secured the future of the Open Championship because it started a debate. And what happens, if you read the minutes at the Presswick Club, is that uh, George Mitchell Innes, who was a member, as all these golfers were at many clubs, including St. Andrews, he put forward a motion at the meeting to uh, expand the tournament to um St. Andrews and Musselboro and have it rotate to make it truly national, the way yeah. that Fairley envisioned it. Have it the course the tournament rotate among the great courses of Scotland. Now Harry Hart, who was the secretary at, at Presswick, um you know, he wanted to buy another belt mm-hmm. and just keep it right there where it was because yeah. it became a big deal. And they were proud, as they ought to have been. Of having started something that had evolved because of the chase for the belt, and because it actually got one, which is always the best thing, um, that that had become so huge. But you know, Mitchell Ennis was a, was more forward thinking, and then in the end, they put both motions to a vote, and Mitchell's vote motion carried by a small margin, and. The reason that it took a year for the other trophy to get purchased is partly because Harry Hart, who was the one who had to do all the negotiating, it would be fair to say that his heart was not really in it. <laughs> right, right, you know? love it. And he, and and of course, you know, St Andrews and Musselboro. St Andrews more so than Musselboro, you know, needed some persuading that they should be uh, involved in this. Sure, they did, they I think fairly wanted him to be involved at the beginning. although there's not any written evidence of that. Well, he was a member there, right, of the RNA. So he won medals there all the time. So I think he wanted it to be like that from the beginning. And I believe Mitchell Innes probably, you know, fairly had died, uh, uh, you know, at the end after 1870. And, you know, I think probably part of it was to preserve what he'd created. And and I think that, um, you know, so Harry Hart was going slow with it. St. Andrews wasn't, you know, wildly anxious to get involved. But in the end, the right thing happened. And so Tommy, in a certain way, then preserves the future of a championship of some kind. That was the sole and only professional championship, national championship of any kind that existed. And so he preserves that for the future by winning the belt and by making golf as famous as he had made it, particularly south of the border in England.
0: Yeah. You know, on that very point. uh, So, folks, when we're talking about Prestwick back then. uh, So there's two parts to this I always think of is. If the Open never leaves Prestwick, um, does Prestwick ever expand beyond twelve holes? Eventually, it would, obviously, with the technology. But I, I wonder often: do we have more? You know, there there are two twelve-hole courses I'm aware of: one in Oregon, and then the other one in Shishkin. And I wonder if there's more twelve-hole golf courses around. If Prestwick holds on to the Open for say, you know, another thirty years. The other part that I always ask myself is if it stays in Presswick and doesn't rotate into our first Open Championship Rota, uh, does the Open Championship's appeal spread you know, essentially across the world? I, mean, I, think, I don't think so,
1: Connor. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Even then, and this is what Mitchell Innes understood, everyone understood that the place that golf – was most revered was Saint Andrews absolutely. You know, the old course was always considered the premier links of the land. Even you know at a time when the honest Com- honest company of Edinburgh, honorable company of Edinburgh golfers at Musselboro was a very high level premier club as well. Yeah. But everybody understood that Saint Andrews was the home of the game, and and I think if you know the thing that Mitchell Innes probably wanted most was to get it there because that's where you have to have it if it's going to get the recognition in the game that obviously it has now. And yeah. I, so I think that's the pivotal moment. I don't think it, you know, who knows what would have happened. You never know, but I would be very surprised if it continued to evolve in the way that it did, had it not, invited both St. Andrews and Musselboro, who were both at that time, you know, leading clubs, yeah. much, much more high profile clubs than Presswick was. Yeah. And, uh, so if it, if they hadn't gotten involved when they did, I, I don't, I'd be surprised if we had the, the quick evolution to the future we now have, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think so.
0: Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you on young Tom to you, what is his greatest gift to the game of golf?
1: You know, I would say um, I would say it is the popularization of the game is the most important thing that he accomplished. And you know, so when, when the open he when he wins the belt, the very first thing that happens after he wins the belt is that a Royal Liverpool decides that they want to stage a, the first major professional golf tournament that's ever been held in England, and that's in 1872. So that's actually. After the belt had been won, but before the Open had resumed. It happens in April of 1872. Right. And uh, they put up an unbelievable sum of money for that period of time. The members donate over 100 pounds, of which 55 is for prize money. And uh, the rest of it is to cover the expenses of professional golfers. Yeah, travel so this, expenses, right? This is a massive turning point. Yeah, it's a big On deal. the same level in a certain way, maybe not on the same level as Tommy charging his own price, but when you have – a leading golf club, deciding that they want these professional golfers there so much that they're going to pay their travel expenses and buy them dinner each night that they're there, then that's a turning point in terms of how they're viewed yeah. in a significant way.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Um, let me ask you this. So first of all, I want to I mention that. Well, let me go back to something you said before, because it, it, it did struck me when I read the book, but it struck me when you were talking about uh, young Tom Morris's style of basically just bashing the ball. Right. Um, and, and actually, where I'm going to take this, I might be wrong, but it seems like Young Tom uh, unfortunately passes away. And I'm sorry, folks, I gave away the ending of the book, Young Tom Dies. I'm, that's a joke. Everyone should know that. Yes. But um, when Young Tom dies with that style, that style kind of dies with him. Like if you think about it, Braid, uh, Taylor, and Varden played a I wouldn't they're definitely I wouldn't call it pocky, but they were not they were stylists. They were not slashing at the ball. You continue that into I think Nicholas probably was a, a basher of the ball, but one I think of right off the top of my head is Tiger Woods and how he went, I think even more so than Nicholas, at the ball so hard to try to send it so far, specifically early in his career. And like young Tom, at least early in his career, his idea was never, I want to beat you by one, I want to beat you by 15. And I think there's a great correlation. And again, I'm telling people, this is another reason to read read this book. If you were a fan of Tiger Woods. People
1: were much more willing to take risks. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That they, uh, Harry Varden and those players, John Henry Taylor, all of them, they would bang the ball right up to the flag and they wouldn't be afraid of a bunker or running over into trouble in the back in the way that, you know, uh, somebody in the, say, Old Tommy era might have laid up in front of the green and then hit a run-up shot with a wooden putter to make sure they got four and at worst five. So the risk-taking part of it survived, but not the the slashing swing. Yes. Yes.
0: But, I mean, don't you see that correlation? I mean, like Tiger – Change that. I mean, we're we're seeing the effects now with how far the ball's going. Because now a generation has watched uh, Tiger Woods hit the ball far, and now we have Brooks Kepka and, and gentlemen like that just really exceeding the limits of what we thought the ball was. Young Tom really started that style, and you know, unlike Tiger, it didn't really take off. Maybe because of his talent level and the equipment he had, it was you know near impossible to pull off what Young Tom could master.
1: You know, it's Tiger is a great is a great correlation with Tommy. I think they're very similar in so many ways. But I would also say that there's always been one or two bashers in every age. Ted yep. Ray was a total basher. That's true. Good point. And, Excellent uh, point. So there's always been one or two, but it, uh, Tiger has taken it to a level that no one ever has in the sense of he's made it the predominant style of golf. Yeah. You know, I think that. So he's he's moved the ball forward in the same way that Tommy did, but. But his has been, you know, in a new new generation with so much more communication and the ability to see people and so forth, imitation is much more uh, available and possible.
0: Yeah. Well, first, before I go on, I'm going to thank uh, Bill Williams. Uh, Bill Williams was the one who uh, recommended I read this book. So thank you, Bill, for that. Um, But as I go on here, I I think one of the great aspects of your book – is at the end of the book. So you read through this great book and it's it's just full of stories weaved together that, uh, that are fantastic. But when you get to the back, you really see the depth and breadth of uh, Stephen's research. And one of the best things, and I had never seen this before, by the way, um, is I'm sure it's not a full list, but I can't even imagine how you went about getting his record in match play matches his record in the open championship, his record in foursome matches, a career summary. It is and then a year by year of tournaments he won. It is comprehensive to a level that I couldn't even comprehend until I got to those back pages. I didn't jump ahead. And when I got to it, I thought, wow, the, the book's kind of over. What could be, you know, the, the next thirty some pages? And I was blown away by your research on that. I mean, it is so impressive, Stephen. It's unbelievable.
1: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know, I have to give all credit to my son there because uh, I had originally written a book, uh, which the part you read, the yeah. reading part, and I sent it around to various people, including my son. And he said, well, you know, Dad, I like the book a lot, but uh, it's a sports book with no statistics in it. <laughs> and uh, don't you know his record? Yeah. Shouldn't you his record? Yes. And I, well, you, you just, you don't, Bob, you don't have any idea how hard that would be to do. Oh, you didn't uh, have it then. No, I did not. Oh and, my uh, goodness. He just so, added
0: so much work to your, your, uh, your research, right?
1: So that was another almost two years of trying to figure that out. No way. And so, so basically what that was, was going back through almost every source that I had read with then the goal of collating every mention of him having played. And then, uh, then additionally trying to pin down some other newspaper articles that I knew would have existed but that I didn't personally possess at that moment because they weren't necessarily part of telling the story uh, and go back and get those. Uh so that took a long time to do, but in the end, I'm pretty sure that's the thing that sold the book. So I have to give all credit to my son, you know, and, and I actually ended up going back into the book and writing through significant portions of it because I realized once I'd compiled all that, that I had underestimated certain things about his life and career. Yeah. Because ah. When you see them on paper, then you realize, oh, my God, you know, he won 60 percent of the time uh, and he won 75 percent of the time or higher if he was playing you one on one. Yeah. And so it, it gave me a, a, a recognition of the a level of dominance that I thought maybe I hadn't captured. The first time through, yeah, and so so I did do that after the fact, uh, and because my son, you know, he suggested it, and then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that needs to be done. Oh,
0: I, I like I said that that part. Well, thanks to your son because I really think it's the a beautiful end cap to the story, uh, to because you don't see that very often, even in books of this to- type, where you really get a depth and breadth of how great they were and the competition they played in and, and the results. Um, so kudos there. Uh, kudos. Thank you. Um, I'm going to get into uh, listener questions. I have three. Okay. Um, so we're going to start off with a dear friend of mine, Tony Deer. Um, at what age was young Tom Morris first able to beat his father?
1: Well, that's a great question, Tony. Thank you for that. Uh, it's not written down the first time he beat his father playing just him and his dad. Neither of them have written that down. When he was 16 years old uh, at Carnoustie, he beat 32 of the best golfers in the world, including his father and Willie Park Sr. And that is the first recorded time that he beat his father. I think it's reasonable to presume that sometime leading up to that, he had beaten his father, you know, in a friendly game. Sure. Um, His father's favorite quote was, I can cope with Alan, but never with Tommy. So it must have been pretty clear to old Tom at a young age that he would never be able to handle his son. He said that a lot to different people who would say that Alan's invincible or this or that. And he would, you know, well, I can cope with Alan, but never with Tommy. You know, so I would say 16 is the only known date that you can name. But obviously they probably played together in friendly matches that weren't written down. uh, He probably beat him before that.
0: Let me, actually I'm gonna before I go into the next question, I, I, I forgot to ask you something or, or maybe have you go into this. Um, a lot of the quotes we hear about his greatness come from his father and you could argue uh, a father's love is biased. I thought but, maybe you could go into one of the gentlemen uh, of the professional ranks who saw all of the great golfers from that era and there to and there to pass uh, Kirkaldy, and I, I was wondering if you might, Go into a little detail about someone who saw the Great triumphant and old Tom Morris uh, as back, far back as Alan Robertson how, what did he think of of young thomas's or young tommy 's game and how, sure. how it translated against eons that passed sure
1: Andrew Kirkcaldy, and uh, I oh, learned I that, yeah. <laughs> that it 's pronounced that way because I gave my first lecture saying it just like you did yeah, a very nice Scotsman came up to me afterward and corrected me. And so in any case, Andrew Kirkcaldy was a a caddy who uh, grew up and he was probably um, I think he was not 15 years old when Tommy died. So he was young enough to have seen Tommy. And he um, he also grew up to take over to old Tom's spot as the person who was the custodian there at St. Andrews holding the flag when people came in and things like that. Very beloved figure. He played against Harry Varden, against John Henry Taylor, of against James Braid. He lived to see uh, all the great players. And the thing that he would say, and he says in his memoir, uh, 50 Years of Golf, I'm often asked who the greatest golfer I have known, and my answer is always the same, young Tommy Morris. It is my honest opinion that he was just a golf genius. Love it. And that that quote goes on to say stuff like, surely, Andrew, he couldn't have beaten Varden and this and that. And he says, I have played against all of them, and I, I've handled most of them, but none of them could beat Tommy. There were others, too. William Dolman, who was a baker from Glasgow and one of the very first amateurs to be able to compete against professionals. He actually won a tournament at Montrose in 1865. He played in every one of Tommy's Opens. He also lived to see Harry Varden, at his peak in 1896, 97, 98, 99. Right. You know, he, he was 100% convinced that Tommy was the greatest golfer he'd ever seen. Leslie Balfour Melville, amateur yeah. player from St. Yeah. Andrews. Great. One of the great amateur players, but great in cricket, great in billiards, great in the lot. Athlete. Yes. Yeah, just an athlete. And he basically Bernard Darwin asked him once about whether he thought Tommy was better than Varden and his answer was, I can't imagine any person playing better than Tommy did.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Great Everyone answer. Everyone who ever yeah. lived
1: to see him play and bothered to write their thoughts down had concluded that he was the greatest golfer they had ever seen or ever would see. You yeah. know, They didn't just think he was the greatest they'd ever seen. They were convinced that they would never see another golfer play the way he had played.
0: I'm going to go into uh, listener question number two. This is from Greg Colley. Uh, why don't more golfers know, about, know the story of young Tom Morris?
1: I think, you know, I, I, it's a hard question to answer. And obviously, now they have the opportunity to know. I was going to say, think, they,
0: they, they need to buy the book.
1: Yes. I think that it's mostly because he became covered up by the long shadow cast yeah. by his father, honestly. Is that his father lived so long and became so famous? And as I spoke about earlier, that and the fact that he had such a short life. People have a difficult time believing that a short life can have the level of impact that his life had. In fact, the first professional agent I sat down with basically listened to me talk for five minutes and said, his life is not long enough to be a book. Uh, Sorry, I don't have any more time.
0: Oh, uh, oh, they were wrong. Glad you proved them wrong.
1: Well, so, so, you know, I think there's just a general feeling that a person who dies at 24 hasn't lived a full life in some ways. And so I think that combined his, his early death, the tragic nature of it, and his father's long life sort of cast him into a shadow that he hasn't been able to recover from.
0: Yeah. All right. I'm going to go to my last question. It's from Mike Woking. Um, It it might be one impossible to answer. Uh, Had young Tom not died so early in life, how would have that have impacted the game and how would it have changed the game?
1: That's a fabulous question. Obviously you can't know that. Uh, One thing I would say is that if there had been an open in 1871, I think the record of, uh, Open championships consecutively won would be five because yeah. in 1871, there was no one that was going to beat young Tom. I can yeah, tell you that.
0: It was that, yeah. Um,
1: but I think that probably, he, you know, I would say that the explosion of golf in England would have happened even sooner and around the world even sooner had Tommy lived. Um, you know, I do think that in the 20 years between his death and the coming along of John Ball, yeah. uh, there is a little bit of a lull. Uh, the game is really growing fairly rapidly in England at that time, uh, starting to grow pretty well. Uh, but it's when John Ball wins the Open there that it—that's the spark that, in my mind, remind me, eighteen ninety. So, that? Eighteen ninety. Okay, yes. thank you. There's a, a growing number of clubs have already started forming, you know, in yeah. England. Uh, but there's still a smallish number, and then. You know, 1888 is the first year that that golfing annual is starts. Yeah. Uh, and the golfing annual has started to document the growth of golf clubs. So by 1888, it's enough that they think they need a book about it that they're going to add new clubs to every year. But when Ball wins in 1890, it just, it's an exponential effect on the game.
0: Yeah, I imagine that. I mean, he wins four opens in a row. Uh, he passes away at – I'm sorry. Is it 24 years old? 24, yes. 24 years old. He'd have another 15 years or so until John Ball. He'd have almost 20, certainly 20 until uh, the very height of the great triumvirate. Right. Um, I mean, listen, I can't tell anybody, and I know you can't either, how many opens he would have won, but it may have been loads.
1: I would think quite a number because, you know, he he was just a golfer of a different caliber uh, than I would say that. He stood above his generation as much or more than any player. Uh, you know, even, I would say there are six people that I think of as Goliaths of their generation, and those are the golfers that I think of as the immortals of the game. Tommy, Harry Varden, Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, Jack Nicklaus, and Tiger Woods. And I would say Tiger has probably been the most dominant during his stretch of greatness of any of them. Uh, but the next closest, I would say, is Tommy. Yeah,
0: I, I would actually say that Tommy, in his time, is the most dominant golfer that ever lived. I mean, I, and I get me, I could be wrong. Two of his Open championships he won by more than 10 strokes. Is that correct? I'm yes, he, his
1: average head. winning score in the Open, the four that he won, was nine strokes. And he
0: finished one Open essentially averaging four per hole. Is that correct? One round
1: of... of one of round a, of four. One, I mean, that's never been done. No, he he was the first... The the thing I think that separates Tommy, the greatest tournament ever played possibly is his win in eighteen seventy, yeah. where he goes around the twelve holes at Presswick, thirty-six holes, he goes three times in hundred and forty nine strokes, of which the first of them is forty seven. Yeah. Talk about setting a tone. He starts with the three on the first hole and uh which was nearly six hundred yards. And for you folks yards. <laughs> yeah, for
0: you folks at home, you're playing a gutty most golfers did not even hit a gutty, and I've played gutty golf. It is extremely hard to hit a gutty ball 200 yards. Right. So to pull so that off in a, three is a stunner.
1: It's crazy. So it sets a tone. People go insane. And he shoots 47 for that opening 12 holes, which is the first time in competitive history that a person had shot what we would think of today as under par. Yeah. You know, they would think of par as even level fours, going around in level fours, and that's 3.9 strokes a hole. So it's basically two strokes under par, what was considered – there was no such thing as par in those days. Absolutely. But the idea of what you should be – what would be perfect golf was described as 49 by Davy Strath and Jamie Anderson. And he shot two less than that, and that was the record, and it stood as a record as long as the Presswick was 12 holes. But uh, the – so that 149 is like the equivalent of 74, 75 for 18 holes. That's just – a stupid score in yeah. that day. It was incredibly, phenomenally, unbelievably, inconceivably low. Yeah, and, uh, so true. I think part of what got people interested in stroke play, and one of the reasons that stroke play emerges as a more popular game, is that Tommy could put up phenomenal scores of that yeah. nature. And it got people thinking about score in a way they never had before. They only ever thought of holes and matches. Absolutely. And Tommy going around in something like 47 or 74 for 18 just blew their minds.
0: Right. Right. It's so good. It's, so, it's just perfect. Um,
1: let me see this.
0: And, and you, I didn't ask you to do this. And you can't, if you can't think of it right now, we'll do it on Twitter. Um, but I thought about this before we started. I'm going to buy two of your books for two of our listeners, but they need to answer two questions from you. So they can't be softball questions. Um, I don't want it to be too difficult, but I don't want it to be an easy Google search. And they're going to have to answer it on Twitter at, with using hashtag TG history. And can you think of two? And if not, we'll okay. do it. We'll do it on Twitter. If not,
1: okay. Let's see here. Um, boy, that's a. We'll have to do that on Twitter. That's I fine.
0: Think no, so. no, no, no. Because the problem there is we don't want them to be softball questions, right? So right. now, if, you, if I control ask control you to ask control. a certain question, no one's going to be able to answer it unless they have the book. So that's not fair. And if we right, give I them too easy, that. like, oh, yeah, you won four opens in a row, that's a simple Google search. So how about this? When this, uh, when this goes live, which hopefully will be tomorrow, um, we, uh, when I put out the, the first uh, – when I first post it on Twitter, I'll tag you, and then you can add the questions right after that. And I'll that let, sounds know, let good, people know I'll that they can win them. two
1: books. I'll think of them on overnight. They'll be good ones. Okay, good, good. Well,
0: folks, uh, this is episode 16 of the Talking Golf History podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like more information, uh, obviously, please buy the book, Mar- Monarch of the Green, Young Tom Morris, Pioneer of Modern Golf by Stephen Proctor. Uh, Stephen, uh, best place to, I mean, Amazon, obviously. Is there any, are there any other methods to purchase this book or is that the best one?
1: If you're in the UK, you can buy it from the publisher, which is Berlin Publishing, B-I-R-L-I-N-N, or on Hive, or on Amazon UK, Uh, and in the United States, it's sold on Amazon. I believe they're going to start making a sales push in the US in September. Uh, uh, So, yeah, but you can get it on Amazon. Perfect.
0: Very good. Um, And for more information on this era of golf... I'll do a personal plug and tell you to check out episode 15 of the Talking Golf History podcast, uh, Golf from the Fringe, which is um, the stolen major. It's a docu-pod narrative. It's only 20 minutes, but it kind of tells you the brief history of the early days of the Open and the year that the Open was almost lost in time. Uh, Thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate it. It was a great podcast. Rod, I miss you. Uh, Rod, by the way, will be on future podcasts. Uh, and for those podcasts where it's just me and Rod talking. Otherwise, I'm taking over the helm and running this ship right into the ground. So thank you again for listening to Talking Golf History. We appreciate it. Thank you.